Ian Wardropper is the Anna Maria and Stefan Kellen director of the Frick Collection and has organized more than 20 exhibitions in his specialties of European sculpture, earlier decorative arts, 20th century design, and decorative arts. Exhibitions he co-organized at the Metropolitan Museum of Art include Art of the Royal Court, Treasures in Pietra Dure for the Palaces of Europe in 2008 and Cast in Bronze, French Sculpture from Renaissance to Revolution in 2009. Recent publications include European Sculpture, 1400 to 1900, in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Bernini, Sculpting in Clay, Limoges Enamels at the Frick Collection, and the Frick Collection Director's Choice. Ian Wardropper, welcome to The Creative Process. Uh, so we're sitting in your offices in uh, the Frick Collection. Uh, but your attraction to the arts began many years ago. You grew up in Baltimore. How, when did you realize that the, art, the arts were a place you wanted to make your life? Well, um, my, I did uh, grow up and was born in Baltimore. My father was a professor of Romance languages and a Scot. My mother was actually Jamaican. And every year when I was growing up, we would go to, to Europe for him to do research or to see my grandparents. So from the time I was six months on, I was on an ocean liner every summer going to Europe and would go to all the capitals of Europe and be dragged through churches and museums. And I have a distinct memory of being in the Prado when I was about seven years old and seeing Velasquez, great Las Meninas painting, which was then in the 1950s displayed very theatrically with a mirror the exact same size as the painting opposite in the window. and So, so it had this that. kind of Alice through the looking, looking yeah. glass quality uh -huh. for a young child of being able to see yourself in the picture through the mirror looking at the Meninas. So that's just the first uh, vivid memory I have of looking at a work of art. But essentially, you know, I grew up looking at works of art in Europe or cities or architecture um, and I was interested in making art at a certain point and in history but in college I finally realized that it was the combination of those two of art history that intrigued me and so I started taking art history classes. This was at Brown? At Brown University um, and Brown in those days and I think still had no distribution requirements so mm -hmm. you could take as many courses, whatever courses you wanted. So once I discovered art history, I did nothing but art history for a year and a half, and then went straight on into graduate school at the Institute of Fine Arts at New York University, mm -hmm. which happens to be um, six blocks north of here. Mm -hmm. um, so my graduate education really was in New York between two major museums. To the north, a few blocks, was the Metropolitan Museum, mm -hmm and Where to the south yes. was the Frick. And those yeah. were two poles of my professional existence and of my training, if you will, in the arts. So, And I ended up working in both museums as it happens. Um, the Met is this extraordinary repository of everything under the sun, great collections uh, of all manifestations of man's creativity. Um, the Frick is very different. It's a house museum. It has a small but extraordinarily refined and choice collection. Um, so I distinctly remember as a graduate student going to the Met for everything that it has to learn about the whole history of art and coming to the Frick for a more personal experience. Just great works of art in a house where you still felt the presence of the collector and the selectivity of somebody having chosen works for a specific reason in response to a specific taste rather than representing all French 18th century painting, for example, from Boucher to Fragonard. It was the Boucher that Henry Clay Frick loved. That's why it was here. So that was part of what um, drew me to working in a museum that I actually assumed in graduate school that I would become a teacher, and I've taught in a number of different universities. 
Um, but it was working with art objects and seeing them in museums like the Metropolitan Museum or the Frick that made me want to go into museum work and ultimately become a curator. So when I was finishing my dissertation and had to think about a career, um, I applied to a lot of teaching jobs and there was one job that year in America mm -hmm. in my specialized field which was European sculpture and I was very lucky I got that job, mm -hmm. otherwise I'd probably be speaking to you in the university right now. Um, but it, it, you know, a professional career is a, a bit of luck as well as predisposition so I knew I wanted to work in museums, I was lucky enough that I was able to find my way here. Yes, and also tell me, uh, is sculpture, uh, European sculpture, particularly mm -hmm. uh, uh, deco decorative art or mm -hmm. decorative arts? I believe you have mm -hmm. a few different specialties, but um, why did you choose those fields? Mm -hmm. um, I chose sculpture, and it was partly because when I was in college, I was taking courses in with sculptors, making mm -hmm. sculpture, um, and. So when I arrived in graduate school, I thought that's what I wanted to work in. Mm -hmm. And again, there was a bit of luck. When I mm -hmm. went to the Institute of Fine Arts in 1973, part of New York University, it happened that five of the top specialists in the world in sculpture were there. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably never happened before or since. And very good graduate students as well. And so it confirmed to me in my interest. I was able to take courses at a very high level um, in European sculpture. And so sculpture is what got me started. And when I started working in museums, I actually began in a department that was called European Painting and Sculpture. Um, but I found as I went forward in my career that I became increasingly interested in the decorative arts as well as sculpture. So actually ended up moving with the sculpture collection into the decorative arts department. I eventually became the head of that department. And so um, they're all objects. I mean, that's the mm -hmm. difference. I mean, it's yeah. not that I don't love paintings. I mean, the Frick is a great collection of paintings as mm -hmm. well as decorative arts. But essentially, if you're dealing with sculpture and decorative arts, they're objects mm -hmm. um, rather than flat um, works on, that can be hung on a, on a wall. Um, and so that's ended up being my interest. It's been primarily Renaissance and Baroque, um, so 16th and 17th century, but I have tended to work also in the 19th century, um, and I've even done things on Soviet propaganda, porcelain, or um, contemporary Austrian architecture and design. Ended up working in fields that I found interesting personally. Right. I think about now, just in terms of the way we receive things, it's often criticized as flat and how our, I don't know if it's changing our appreciation or our value of sculpture or the physical object. I, I don't know. I mean, also the way images of art are shared now. Uh, what has that been the evolution since the beginning of your career in terms of that? I mean, there's a couple themes in what you've just said. I mean, yes. one is the, the relative value of sculpture and painting and how it's mm -hmm. viewed today. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's an ancient topos mm -hmm. going back to what's called the Paragone in, mm -hmm. in the Renaissance in Italy when there, was, there were many debates and arguments about which was the best medium, sculpture mm -hmm. or painting. Um, and um, it, I think through the course of the 20th century, most people thought that painting had won that battle um, and that that was the most admired, um, most widely viewed art form. Um, I, I'd say in the last quarter century or so, sculpture has made has a much stronger presence in contemporary art. Yeah. Um, it's partly as media have have blurred somewhat. There's less hard lines between an artist working in one medium and another, mm -hmm. um, that working in three dimensions seems to have become more interesting mm -hmm. to a lot of people. Um, I'm saying this as a non-specialist in the contemporary field, but I, I think that that's true. I think people have become more interested in, in sculptural, in objects. Um, 
and it's you know it's simply an observation of mine rather than something which I know to be a fact. Um, the I mean the other problem is that I think museums have tended to privilege paintings over sculpture in the decorative arts. So traditionally, decorative arts were always in the basement, and paintings would be in the main galleries. Um, there are more exhibitions on paintings than there are on sculpture, and that's partly because it's logistically easier to yeah. do exhibitions on paintings. You can pack them, hang them on a wall very simply, whereas if you have a sculpture, you have to get a pedestal, you have to mount it, and it's mm -hmm. more difficult to light, um, it's more complicated to pack. Mm -hmm. um, and then there is a kind of vicious circle of, I think many people think that the public is more interested in painting than they are in sculpture, so there tend to be more exhibitions on paintings, and that mm -hmm. kind of keeps going in that way. So it's it's harder to push forward an exhibition on sculpture and certainly on the decorative arts. I mean, one sees less of that. And I'm talking mainly of the old master field now, so mm -hmm. things between 1500 and 1900, let's say. Yes, of course, because we've, I mean, to say the least, we've moved towards minimalism. And so those, the, the, all those, um, all that craft, art, but craft is, uh, we don't appreciate it as well. That just seems unfortunate. And this is the same with paintings, invisible brushwork or something. It's not, it's not appreciated by, let's take about many people, yeah. it's not. That comes and goes, yes. I think, in terms of people's interest in craft. No, but I think it is. I think because it tells about, you know, these the works of art that you live with. And I don't mean to be going off on this tangent about sculpture. Uh, I, I've always thought it is a, a more difficult medium because I'm a painter and I think, you know, paintings, uh, you have many tricks up your sleeves, you have color and this and, but a, a sculpture, and I think it is fascinating. People really respect it, but maybe they don't, uh, it's monumental or whatever, but you have to, it has to work all the way around. It has to be perfect. You have to have this balance, and that is like um, it's like a work of art that evolves over time. Yeah, I mean they all evolve over time, but mm. it has to like a painting. It's like a, oh, you can hide things. Oh, it's it's so mm. easy. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is just from my point of no, view. No, I mean it's an interesting <laughs> question in and of itself. Yeah. I think you. But maybe it's like you know the thing is that sometimes people, not everyone likes to think. And this is the thing. Not everyone, I mean, they, li they like it when their imagination is engaged, but sometimes with a sculpture, you don't know where to look at it. Yeah? Maybe it's easier to look at a painting. I, I think that's true. I think people have, um, there's, more, there's, there's seemingly more information, and so you, you look at it in one direction, whereas, as you're saying with a sculpture, often it's, um, you, can, you can only fully appreciate it by circumambulating it and looking at yeah. it from different views and understanding how the sum of those different views create your, your total image of it. Yes. Um, and, and I think also people don't have a language to talk about sculpture as yeah. readily as they do about paintings and that's the fault of educators and, and museums. We don't, you know, we don't talk about it as much. Yeah. I, even in uh, when I was at the Metropolitan Museum, I would occasionally give talks to the docents, the people who were talking to the public, and yeah. and they didn't have that many opportunities to learn about sculpture and how to talk about it. And I found one, if I could find interesting ways for them to talk about sculpture, then they would give talks to the public. And so you have to kind of encourage that. Mm -hmm. um, it's It isn't easy. but. I mean, so getting back to, say, a place like the Frick, um, one of the things that I love about this place is that we really do encourage people to look closely. Yeah. And that's partly because um, we don't have that many objects. So mm -hmm. um, the pace here is quite slow and not hurried or pressured. So we're asking people to kind of slow down when they come here and take their time. Um, whereas a big place like the Metropolitan Museum, which I love, has so many people, such a large audience, there's always this kind of pressure to keep moving, if you will, yeah. whereas here we don't want people to move. We want people to just slow down and find their rhythm and find something that interests them. And to preserve the sense of a house, it's a mm -hmm. private house originally, we don't have labels, we tend not to, which is another way, it's another cue to the public to kind of just 
look, I think sometimes if there's labels everywhere, people sort of look first to the label and decide what they're supposed to look at in the painting yes. or sculpture, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas here, if th- there's less information. So they just, they're drawn into first the ambiance of a room because mm-hmm. we, we don't divide things at the Frick by time period or, um, or country, for example. Mm-hmm. It's what works together as an ensemble in a living room or a dining room. Um, and so I think the first thing is just for people just to understand and feel where they are, mm-hmm. you know, what's the feeling of the room, and then what are the objects that they're drawn to in the room, and maybe they're interested in Holbein's portrait of Sir Thomas More, and so, and then they might notice that there's another Holbein on the other side of the mantelpiece, which is a, of Thomas Cromwell, and maybe they know or don't know that Cromwell was the person who executed Thomas More at the behest of Henry VIII, the king. And so maybe they have some questions, and, or maybe they want to know how he painted in such a refined manner. Um, so what I'm saying is I'm, we're hoping that people kind of come up with their own questions first, and then it's our responsibility to answer them. And how we do that um, is a little difficult because we don't have as many, we don't have labels, mm-hmm. but we have docents, lecturers, we have audio tours, we have um, a very good website, um, we have catalogs, literature. Um, so it's kind of our responsibility to kind of make this information available to people as, as they have their questions and hopefully then stimulate others. So <coughs> that's um, th- what I love about the Frick and working at the Frick as opposed to the other museums I've worked at is um, the scale, small collection, the quality. I mean, the quality of the collection for a small one, the house is very, very high. Um, you should speak of the, uh, sorry, I saw yeah. some of the others in your collection are longer. What I, I saw uh-huh. I interrupted you. Oh, no, just, and, and, yeah. and the personality. It, yeah. it, it's a place that has a real personality, whereas mm-hmm. um, many museums in the end become, they end up becoming like every other museum because there's this sense if you're going to represent the history of art, then you have to have artist A and artist B and artist C. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other museums also have the same artists. Whereas the Frick, because it began as a personal collection, mm-hmm. is the reflection of one person's taste. And his daughter, who happens to have been very important, uh, Helen Clay Frick, his daughter, was interested in early Italian pictures, for example, which Frick wasn't. So some of our greatest paintings, Duccio Cimabue, Pierre de la Francesca were acquired because of his daughter. Um, but we, we don't have every artist. We have artists that appeal to Henry Clay Frick and to his daughter. Um, and he loved some artists in depth. So we have lots of Van Dykes and Turners. Um, but we happen not to have a Rubens. You know. mm-hmm. So it's, it's an uneven collection in this, if one's simply looking at the kind of classic um, way in which art history is talked about a, a particular field, um, but it's more personal, and uh, I think that that is something which I appreciate more and more. But it's also a challenge. Um, the other challenge we have is that we have very little. We're a European collection primarily, and we have actually a quite good collection of Chinese vases, which nobody knows about. We should do more with that. Um, but we have virtually no American art. We have practically nothing after 1900. Um, so we don't do very much with contemporary art, which, you know, in a city like New York, that's what almost everybody else does. Um, and what we have to do is to simply acknowledge this is who we are, you know, we, to do a good job with trying to get an audience of today, which may be further and further away from understanding, say, the culture of the 16th century. How do we get them interested in that? But that's, that's interesting. You have the Ghetto Film Project. You have mm-hmm. these other, which are ways, I imagine, of, of bringing different perspectives on your collection mm-hmm. and, and hearing their perspectives. Yeah, we have a number of um, partnerships with cultural institutions around the city, which I... Uh, 
I really like, and so you mentioned the Ghetto Film School, which is a really interesting one. We're in our fifth year with them, and the, the, the Ghetto Film School is actually a nonprofit that supports a, a Bronx high school teaching program in filmmaking. So this, it's a public school. Many of these students have never been in an art museum in their life, and the, the, the school was looking for a museum partner so they could bring art into their curriculum. And so the way that the program works is the students come to the Frick over the course of a year. They have courses in our galleries when we're closed to the public with our chief curator and other curators and educators sitting around looking at works of art, discussing them. Um, and then the students, each one um, in the class, and it's usually groups of 10, writes a film treatment based on or inspired by a work of art in the Frick. And then the students choose which one they're going to make, and then each one of the students has a different role in making the film. So one's the director, one's the cinematographer, the lighter, and so on. Um, and they make short films, but beautiful little films, um, in which they're responding to old master paintings. And what makes the students interested, I believe, in paying attention to these paintings which are out of their ken, um, are that they begin to see that old master painters or sculptors um, had techniques of narrative, of telling a story, and that they can learn from that and they can use that in making their own, telling their own stories in their films. <coughs> so it becomes a, suddenly becomes more vital to them to kind of pay attention to what's going on and you know, to discuss how the artist did that and what does it mean and that they can pull that into their own work. So it's the very first film that was made was um, five years ago about our Fragonar room. It's called, it's a series of paintings called The Progress of Love. And there was a 16-year-old Latina who was angry that, that Fragonar could pretend that love could be compartmentalized so neatly into different chapters. So her, she wrote her, her film sort of slightly in reaction to that. Uh, and it's a, it's a love story. It's about two gay Puerto Rican men who meet in the Fragonar room and it follows their, their relationship and they break up. And, but, you know, it's a very beautiful little film um, that is just completely inspired by a totally different work of art, a, a French series of paintings in the 18th century. So that, I love that kind of connection when works of art can inspire somebody else and inspire another medium. We have another program with um, a, a Harlem, a, a school in Harlem, um, in which the, all the students, all, every student in the, in the student body comes to the Frick over the course of a year. And they have a poetry project where they write poems related to works of art that they like in the Frick. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these are ways in which I think um, um, a museum can simply serve as a springboard to other people's creativity, hopefully just inspire them maybe to think about something they never would have thought of otherwise and take it in a different direction. And for us, it's interesting to see where it goes, how somebody else reacts to what's here. So when I walk into the Fragonard room now, I know quite a lot as an art historian about France, French art in the 18th century, but I often think about Gabby Martinez's film now when mm -hmm. I go into that, to that room. It's kind mm -hmm. of given another layer. I'm Katrina Espano, a filmmaker and writer based in Chicago. I'm a senior studying film and television as well as journalism at DePaul University. And I'm an associate's interviews producer at The Creative Process. When Ian Wardropper speaks about the Ghetto Film School and how they needed to create a film treatment based on a piece in the Frick Collection, for me, it seemed like a way to understand each other's art language quote-unquote art language itself is an interesting concept to me and I can go on and on about what art is and what forms art comes in but in this particular case there's already a huge difference. My way of expressing art is mostly digital but I have many peers who have different art mediums away from the computer. There's a common language in both mediums but sometimes I don't understand their way of expression. 
it doesn't mean I don't support it, and vice versa. A painting to some people isn't as stimulating as a video, and sometimes a video isn't as stimulating as a painting, but when you try to incorporate both together, it becomes something both artists can find a common ground. Which is what I think is genius about this collection and what he's doing. When the students try to come up with a piece, it requires some sort of understanding and connection to the painting. I've done something like that before. I took myself to the art museum to find inspiration for a video, and there it was. I started taking pictures of pieces from all over the museum, and the minute I came home, I started brainstorming what I can do to incorporate both video and museum pieces. I saw a pattern in the pictures I took, and that pattern was women. So I decided to make an edit dedicated to empowering women using the photos I took. The ending product, what's in a woman? So we, we also try to draw um, contemporary artists and writers into dialogue with our collection. I said earlier that we're, we're not a contemporary art museum, and I want to be absolutely clear. But you're generating contemporary art indirectly. We, I'm perfectly happy to have open dialogues yeah. and, to, and to generate. Yeah. Um, so we have an exhibition up right now of... Um, Edmund Duvall, who's an artist and a writer who's made a series of works of art specifically in response to the Frick, either to the whole, an entire gallery or to works of art. So um, this is something he's done in, in Europe, in European museums. He's never done it in an American museum. And he's very interested in the Frick, which he's known since he was 17 years old. So it's kind of qu quite a personal response. Um, and I think for many people, they won't... In they won't in immediately see w what the piece has to do that he's made in relationship to an old master art. But, but there are connections, and I think so if people spend time with it, it can go quite, they can go quite deep. They're also rather quiet works of art, so they don't demand that you look at them, but mm -hmm. they're present, and if you take them in, um, Edmund has also given kind of background information. We have an audio tour, so... You can hear him talking about why he made it. And he also tends to listen to specific pieces of music while he's making art. So we have those pieces you recorded so you can listen to the music that inspired him to make the objects. So that's you know another example of how we try to make people look in different ways at our collection. Um, we also have a, a series of books which we started years ago, I think, called Frick Diptychs. Mm -hmm. And the concept of this is each book is um, devoted to a single work of art in the Frick. Um, a curator writes an art historical essay about this work of art. And then we look for somebody in the arts who's a, a writer or an artist who will respond to that work of art in the same book, hence diptych, two different sides. Mm -hmm. Of a work of art. So um, I mentioned earlier Holbein's painting of Sir Thomas More. So the first book in the series happened to be Xavier Salomon, who was, who was our chief curator, writing about this painting, and then Hilary Mantel, a writer who's written <laughs> about, um, about Thomas Cromwell, yes. which we also have a painting here, wrote um, a letter as if it was by a contemporary to Sir Thomas More. Um, or another one in the series was James Ivory, uh, the scriptwriter, filmmaker, wrote a kind of a, a script or film treatment of our Vermeer, Mistress and the Maid. Um, mm -hmm. And um, Edward, Edmund Duvall, who I mentioned, wrote uh, a, a book, a diptych, on um, a pair of mounted vases mounted in the 18th century. He's a great specialist in mm -hmm. pottery and porcelain, and these are two white porcelain vases that were then mounted in, in 
<coughs> excuse me, guilt for honesty. <coughs> excuse me. So that's you know another way in which we're we're sort of exploring how this collection can reach out to other audiences. And you have a young curators project as well. Um, are you working with young curators? Yes, I, I think what you're referring yes. to is we have a, um, a program that's called the Poulet Fellows. Mm -hmm. It's, I think, in about its 15th year now. And this is uh, aimed at a very high level of graduate students in art history. So it's highly competitive. Um, we take them from all one a year from mm -hmm. somewhere around the world. And um, they come in having written a proposal of what they mm -hmm. want to do when they're here, which may or may not happen. They may mm -hmm. alter their proposal once they come. They come for two years. They're supposed to finish their dissertation for their doctoral dissertation when they're here. And they do an exhibition. Mm -hmm. And when it began 15 years ago, it was quite modest, sort mm -hmm. of small exhibitions, one work of art. It's grown over the years so that if if it's a really interesting project, we may give it the green light to be a bigger project. Mm -hmm. And um, but one of the things I love about about the Frick and our exhibition program is that we've made the most of our limitations, which is that we're not a very big place. We don't have great resources. Um, we don't have very big um, spaces to devote to temporary exhibitions. So we've always um, made the most of those limitations by doing small exhibitions that are highly focused. Mm -hmm. And I personally, over, over the years, I've worked on very big exhibitions, but I really love small focused exhibitions. And I believe that the public does too because they're very clear. You can, mm -hmm. you can come in, you can get the, the theme quickly, you can understand it. Um, and we, so we tend to have exhibitions that are both highly focused and a great level of quality. Mm -hmm. And so this Poulet Fellows program allows these young, talented people basically to have their first opportunity to do an exhibition. So they come up with an idea and um, we facilitate that. But they learn how to do an exhibition working with our chief curators, with established curators, um, but they learn how to come up with an idea, how to flesh it out, what objects are necessary to make that theme um, be realized within an exhibition space, what kinds of topics a catalog should address or not, um, how to lecture about it. They, they learn all the practical side as well as the intellectual side of developing an exhibition. Uh, and we've had some highly successful exhibitions by these uh, younger graduate students that have been have received international acclaim. Um, so for a young student to, to have their first exhibition written about in the New York Times and uh, European journals as well is, is an amazing experience. Um, and they do, they do shows which I'm very proud of. The last one I guess that we had was called the Charter House of Bruges. Oh, yes. uh, it was based on we have one painting that was painted by Jan van Eyck, but it was painted in the last year of his life, so it was clearly done by him and Workshop, which we've mm -hmm. always known. So this was an exhibition that focused on, partly on you know, the question of attribution, how much is the master, how much is the, the workshop. Uh, but the main uh, focus was really on the patronage that brought it into being. Um, there was a abbot of the Chartreuse, the Charterhouse of Bruges, um, named Jan Vos, uh, who commissioned several works of art when he was there. And one was this Van Eyck, but he also commissioned other artists from the time period to do pieces for the, the Charter House, which was torn down later. So this was a, a small exhibition that kind of recreated the works of art that were commissioned by this one abbot and the different functions they played in the Charter House, whether it was for personal devotion or more more communal devotion, um, and in some cases, one with a memorial to the person who commissioned it, so in a way, part of his, um, his afterlife. Um, so it, it was a, a, a lovely little show that sort of brought together a group of objects 
including a, a carved wooden prayer bead, a man, illuminated manuscript, all that had a connection with this one uh, charter house at that time. And so only maybe 10 objects in the show, but it was, um, you know, it was a, 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 a quite powerful, very redolent exhibition, even though it was only a few objects. But the objects were each one really interesting, really good, and, and well chosen, and, and cohered in a way that the student made apparent through the placement of the objects and the intellectual background of the catalog and the way it was presented. So th these are things which, um, you know, I've, I've presented a range of ways that we reach um, the public or younger people, whether it's um, middle school students working on poetry from the Harlem School or um, high school students for the ghetto film project to um, graduate school and of course we have general programs for the public but um, I particularly like the, the projects I've been describing because we build these relationships with um, cultural institutions and, and work with them over time so that um, they continue to come to the Frick over a period of time. And I, I think it's, you know, it's just interesting to see that build as everybody adds to uh, you know, a new facet or a new idea comes yeah. through. Well, your house then becomes their house. It, it's just that. I, I, there's a few things that I like to talk about. The interesting is that how, um, I just mentioned the street so I don't forget, um, how we can how we educate through the arts, how that how that tells us about our current culture, our current times, and uh, cultures in the past. It maybe it is in a more living, present way than uh, books alone. You know, that's an interesting way of teaching. Mm -hmm. um, and then I thought that it was interesting when you saw, talked about the limitations of the museum. I don't never thought that as a limitation, but I understand you mean about scale. But I think whether this is beautiful is because. Um, you know, when we speak about this humanistic education, the, the real, well, for me, one of the goals of that is that we are teaching people not just to admire art as something that we visit rarely in a museum that feels so removed, it's how the arts, how that comes into our daily life. Mm -hmm. I liked very much something I read that you said that, uh, you know, you contemplate one work of art a day, it becomes like a diary or something. I thought that's very nice, this kind of mm -hmm. daily practice of mm -hmm. rejuvenating the senses. And then, thirdly, because I had so many questions I wanted to ask, I thought about some of your um, past bigger exhibitions. You were talking about small and big, mm -hmm. and that um, I think you did a, a Vatican art exhibition. But, okay, that's next. <laughs> um, <coughs> well, I, you know, as I said, I sort of started on big exhibitions. Yeah. and. It happened when I first went to the Art Institute of Chicago, uh, which is the first museum I worked in, in, yeah. in 1982. Um, as a young green curator with really no experience, they put me in charge of what was the largest exhibition they'd ever had um, at that point, of which I wasn't the organizer in the intellectual sense because it had already been put together, but I was in charge of bringing it to Chicago and designing it and presenting it. Um, and so it was called the Vatican Collections, the Papacy and Art. It was the first time the Vatican had sent a major group of art outside of the Vatican. Um, and it was very interesting to present it in Chicago, which is a very Catholic city, mm -hmm. meaning there are a lot of people with which Catholicism is really important in their lives. Um, and this was an exhibition that uh, was a little bit unusual at the time. It showed the collections as they were formed over time and how each pope had a different way in which he created his own museum or you know had a different approach um, and so you know it was sort of over over a thousand years of the Vatican history if you will the way in which art served the church and in particular the Vatican um, so for me it was just a great experience and lesson in how to put together an exhibition but also how to communicate um, so I was, I had never been on television or radio, for example, and in, in three months I had 25 television and radio interviews, national, international. Um, so I had to learn how to communicate to a variety of different audiences. And that is, is I think, one of the great 
values of the museum is that we do have so many different kinds of audiences and it's really important that we understand what each audience is looking for and try to speak to them in a way that will resonate with them um, but also to challenge each audience not just to say it's this but you know what do you see in it to try to, to create this dialogue because I mean back to the question about how museums can educate that you posed earlier um, in this country as everyone knows the arts have become less prevalent in in schools in the, in the, in the educational system and it's a great pity because I mean I firmly believe that the arts should be a part of everybody's education and it's not just learning the history of art but it, it's about opening up creativity is, is that as a as a means that can um, that can be useful to somebody throughout one's life and so um, museums can't replace the school systems I mean yeah. we're not big enough mm -hmm. and a place like the Frick of course is you know it's a, a, a very great museum but it's a small museum so we can only accommodate a certain number of students um, and so what we try to do is reach that small group of number of students but reach them really well and really deeply um, and to try to give them a, a meaningful experience which I think typically happens over time rather than one visit so we really encourage if possible that students come back mm -hmm. and that they begin to feel that this is their place and that's important for an institution like the Frick because it it still has I think in many people's minds a slightly forbidding quality it seems a little distant uh, certainly for young people you know how, what, what's going to be in the Frick for them and so we have to try to make it welcoming to them and then um, make the visit about them so they really feel that they've been paid attention to um, and make them want to come back. And it's only maybe a few students that we can reach, but they may tell their friends, they may bring other people back. Um, so I think that's, that's the role that we can play. And as we've been speaking, it's not just about art history. It's a, it's a broader, broader humanistic um, opportunity that we offer because this can be taken off in the context of literature or film or dance uh, or history. Um, dance is a great way for exploring. We were talking about sculpture before, mm -hmm. with sharing with people the, the livingness of sculpture. I think, anyway, that's a mm -hmm. side point. Um, no, yes, it is a broader So if you don't mind also, because we're working with some, you know, art schools and arts mm -hmm. programs like uh, the Bull, the so we will invite their creative responses. I would love to do that and also feature some of those. Um, I guess you have some images or documentation of some of the creative responses already to, to your collection. I think that that's mm -hmm. really you know, beautiful that you engage people's imaginations. Um, but you do have, not speaking then of opening up to the future or being forward-looking or expanding, I don't know... The, the renovation project. I don't know if yeah. this has gone through iterations or, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. How is, uh, it takes time. <laughs> sure, I mean, this, the, the, the Frick has been open to the public since 1935. Mm -hmm. It was built as a house, but Henry Clay Frick, we believe, intended that it should always be a public collection. Mm -hmm. But it has the problem of any old house that it wasn't designed for the purpose of being a public institution and it's relatively small mm -hmm. and so from the beginning the Frick has always had constrictions on space which as I said earlier can be a, of great value I think limitations can, can, be, can, be, can be valuable but when it comes to many things such as um, being able to serve a number of students um, we, we had no classrooms we had you know, no place for students to hang their coats you know, just very basic things which need to be addressed so we can do a better job with our students. Mm -hmm. We have practically no facilities for conservation of our works of art. Um, people have to stand outside sometimes because we don't have a big enough coat room. Um, our skylights are beginning to leak. They're 100 years old. Mm -hmm. So our infrastructure, including our electrical systems and heating systems, need to be replaced. Mm -hmm. um, so we're not 
talking about changing the galleries, which everybody knows and loves, but we're talking about adding some more space discreetly that will help us achieve our mission better, including opening up the second floor. So this, where we're sitting, my beautiful office, uh, <coughs> we plan to become a public gallery. And that's because we, our collection has grown over the years. More and more of it goes into storage, so I want to have space to be able to bring things out more and, and show them to the public. And I think the public would love to be able to come upstairs anyway and see these were the private quarters of the Frick. We're sitting in what used to be Mrs. Frick's dressing room, her boudoir. Um, her bedroom was through that door. And I think the public would understand better how the whole house worked from coming upstairs to see the more intimate quarters as opposed to the more public rooms downstairs. <coughs> so that's something I've been working on for a while. We're intending to break ground about a year from now to do this construction, which will take a couple of years. We have to move the entire collection off-site mm -hmm. because it's such a pervasive uh, construction design, especially because all the infrastructure has to be worked on. So for the safety of the collection, we have to move it out. And uh, fortunately, I've been able to find a good solution, which is the, the former Whitney building, which is only five blocks from here, has been um, taken over by the Metropolitan Museum for several years. Uh, but they, when I was looking for some place for us to have a temporary home in, um, I started talking with the Metropolitan, and, and they were eager to talk because it had become a problem for them, that space, for a number of reasons I won't go into. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's nearly perfect for us. So we'll move in there and open to the public perhaps a year and a half from now. Mm -hmm. And we'll be open for about two years. It's an interesting challenge because it, it's as different a building from the one that we're sitting in as one could imagine, even though they're only 50-some years apart. Mm -hmm. um, the Breuer building was built in 1966. It's what's known as brutalist architecture. It's very severe, forbidding. Um, and we can't recreate the Frick there. It would make no sense. We really have to work with what's there, with the kind of severity of the walls. And so we've been imagining and working together to think about how we will show our collection there. Uh, and it will be very different. Uh, we won't show as many objects. We won't try to show them in the mix that we do here, mm -hmm. um, which is one of the virtues of the Frick, where we'll have Chinese porcelain next to Italian Renaissance bronze statues next to Spanish 17th century portraits, all kind of mixed together in this wonderfully evocative way. We just can't recreate that there. So we'll we'll sh work with our collection. It'll be shown very differently, um, which intrigues a lot of people and intrigues us too, because we'll probably end up showing things in the in the end, which may be more conventional in the way that other museums display mm -hmm. things, but which we've never done. So we may put all our Spanish pictures together, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, we have quite an important collection of Chinese porcelain, which we've never shown together. So. Um, it'll, it'll be an opportunity to kind of um, think about the collection in, in quite a different way and engage the public in, in the, uh, the idea of what does this house do to the way people perceive art. Yeah. When, you, when you take it out and that painting is no longer against a, a fabric wall and you know, next to a piece of Chinese porcelain in the context of a room, but simply on a white wall. Mm -hmm. What's it going to look like? How is it? How are we going to perceive how, perceive it? How is that going to be different? It's even interesting that you call it the the Frick Collection. You know, mm -hmm. because in fact, I mean, you are a museum, right? But that's but right. It's in yes, but it's so interesting because that's telling you, it's uh, it's a collection, it's arrangement. Uh, effectively, I feel, and I would like to speak a little bit about. We touched on it a little bit on Henry Frick's uh, background. We didn't mm -hmm. talk about so much. He sure. come, uh, he came. He's quite, he's quite poor, right? And mm -hmm. uh, well, not in the end. <laughs> but yeah. and then, but what you are welcoming us into this Frick collection, I feel like you're walking into the collector's mind. That mm -hmm. is kind of fascinating and voyeuristic. Um, but mm -hmm. yes. Yeah, I, I mean that's a, a big topic. But I'll just say briefly that he, 
he did have a relatively poor background, as you yeah. say. <coughs> he was born in western Pennsylvania. Um, his father was an immigrant farmer. His mother's family had um, a liquor distillery and a hardware store. Um, and so he started working for the family concern, uh, but he recognized astutely the importance of coke, which is a derivative of coal that's necessary to achieve the high temperatures to make iron and steel. So with his drive and personality, force of personality, within a short period of time, he had a monopoly of the best coking operation in the world. That was the source of his fortune. And he later joined the Carnegie Iron and Steel Company, uh, which is when he really made money. But what, what I find intriguing and endearing about him is that even when he was a very young man, when he was 21, he was already collecting. He was collecting what he could afford. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know he had prints and drawings all over, all over the offices and the factories where he was. Um, and what's interesting is that he collected contemporary art. And when he made more money, when he made his first fortune, it was contemporary American painting, contemporary British and French painting, Barbizon School, Jerome, Kolob. Um, and so for the first 30 years of his life, that's what he collected, it's contemporary art. Most people now think of him as an old, exclusively old master collector, but it was only when he moved to New York around 1900 that he shifted the focus quite exclusively to old master art. And so um, it, it, you know, it's appropriate that we would call this the Frick Collection. It was very much a, a private endeavor. Um, his daughter, as I said earlier, also was very uh, instrumental after her father's death in continuing the collection and into areas that he didn't himself particularly collect. And we've never had any strictures on what we collect to this day, so we continue to collect, not a great deal, um, but the, the one criterion that's foremost is it has to be the highest level of quality, because that's what he set out and so it's a small collection, but quite uniformly, everything is the highest level of quality. And that's, I think, the hallmark of the collection. Well, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a beautiful collection, and it's a, a beautiful um, series of um, uh, educational and community engagements that you have. And, and we look forward to sharing it with our, our students. And so if you're listening, you know um, from any of the schools, so just send us any of your creative responses, whether they're um, visual arts or literary or film. We're very open to that and to show them alongside the ones that have been already created in response to it. Thank you. Um, no, I just, I think you spoke about the importance of the arts, and I thought there might be just something, like the importance of the arts and education, like as you think about the future, you know? And the kind of, uh, <coughs> big questions, but like, you know, the kind of world we are leaving our children and why we have to um, remind ourselves of the past. Like, what is the importance of those endeavors? Mm. Do you want me to form that as a precise question? Or <laughs> sure, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. Um, you know, the, I mean, the world has become so focused on the present and, you know, I fear that people are forgetting that one can take lessons from the past and so obviously that's part of um, what a museum like the Frick can offer is lessons on the past. But there's more to it. I think we're also losing the ability to focus closely for long periods of time. I mean, life today is so fragmented and I think also people are not always fully present anymore. They're looking at their iPhones. There are so many distractions. Um, and that's what I think the, the activity of looking at art can help with, is to make people appreciate how much they can um, learn and take inspiration from an in-depth engagement with anything, whether it's a work of art or a work of literature or a garden. Um, mm -hmm. But 
um, you know, what I, what I find is more and more, you know, you walk the streets of New York and nobody's looking where they're going anymore because they're looking at their iPhones and mm -hmm. nobody's talking to anybody anymore because mm -hmm. they're, talk they're talking to people on their, on their cell phone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think art can help to recapture that sense of um, the pleasure one can have mm -hmm. um, of fully engaging with a work of art. Um, and the kind of intellectual stimulation by really thinking through mm. in depth the, the layers of meaning, uncovering the layers that, you know, not just the, the first layer, but can you go a little bit deeper? And that's something that we champion at the Frick in our education department. It's really the philosophy of the education department is close looking. So our educators sometimes will give classes for an hour on one painting. And I've seen young people, when they begin to realize that they're going to be there for an hour, they start looking for the door. But if the teacher is really good, mm -hmm. then I think they lose sense of time. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I think, part of what the arts can do is also is just to allow you to lose yourself in something, you know, to mm -hmm. just so fully engage with something else that it takes you out of yourself into another realm. Um, and I think that's another opportunity that the arts offer. So what do the arts offer for the future? You know, I hope that it might be, you know, continually renewed appreciation for achievements of the past and, you know, and how achievements of the past can connect to what's being achieved today and what might be possible in the future. So there's this kind of dialogue that the arts provide. Um, and um, you know, I hope that it continues to be a kind of means of self-discovery. Um, and I think it's something that also is not limited to people in the, interested in the arts. You know, uh, we have at the Frick a program, and have had it now for, I think, 12 years, in which first-year medical students come to the Frick and um, look at works of art. And the whole point is to make them more observant Mm -hmm. um, and so that, you know, and many of them, they're, they're pulled out of their labs or their hospital room experiences and they have to come to a museum uh, and they're asked to look. And again, they may not understand the beginning what it's all about, but really it's, it's about paying attention and how if they you know, pay attention to anything deeply, they'll learn more. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think also in, this, in the case of doctors specifically that, that they're often kind of subtle cues in the patient, which they might miss if they don't pay attention. So the patient, the patient may not be able to vocalize what the problem is, but may be sending some signals or may have some physical condition, which if the doctor is really paying attention will help to make a, um, a correct diagnosis. So, you know, that's just to say that I think the arts are not limited simply to people who think of it as a a plastic art experience, but can have applications in the sciences or many other areas. Um, just as you know, we can enjoy listening to music, or you know, um, perhaps even understanding the beauty of a mathematical equation, um, mm -hmm. even if that's not our specialty. But sure. but part of it is being exposed to the experience, and then having hopefully someone who can help guide you to understand that through an educator, an educator, for example or simply a communal experience. And one of the best things about a museum is visiting with a friend and having a conversation about a work of art and exchanging mm -hmm. views. What, do you, what does this one person see as opposed to this other person? And what does that say about the work of art or about each other? No, it's a, it's a very beautiful thing that the, that the arts give to all of us, a means of connection, a common language. and. Uh, a relief or a, an escape also sometimes from this this world with its complications okay. as well. Thank you very much uh, Ian Wardropper for um, sharing your insights into a curator's life, a, a director of a museum's life and um, into um, the ad for adding diverse to the creative process. Thank you. Well, it's been my pleasure and I hope those listening will come and visit the Frick whether we're Frick Madison, which is what we're calling the Whitney, or when we've finished here, 
um, and that they will find pleasure in looking at art here or anywhere in the world in terms of their own sense of creativity. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Katrina Espano. Assignment editor is Cyril Lark. Digital media coordinator is Camille Montilino. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition, Traveling to Leading Universities, or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.